0: And built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H E L P. Life is full of what ifs, some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? Greetings, comrades. This episode was requested on our Facebook page by our listener Oliver, and we understood that a statement in our previous episode really needed some explanation. See, uh, in my last show I stated that, when talking about how the Skripal poisoning happened, that this new act seemed similar to the bombings and terror acts which helped Putin's rise to power in 1999. And Oliver's request about more on that subject caused others in our social media sites to show a lot of interest in this, so, um, so here we are. See, uh, in the summer of 1999, the Yeltsin presidency and his era of rule was kind of closing in and coming down to an end. And those guys in Yeltsin's close proximity and everyone from, from that clique of people were really, really afraid for their freedom and their lives. Uh, there were kind of the first signs of the economy of Russia sort of recovering, but basically everyone were, was still living in poverty at that point, and a lot of businesses just hadn't been paying salaries for like months there. So all the Sielchen crew at this point, uh, they were completely hated for, by by the people for their role in basically looting the whole country, and this whole crew was increasingly getting isolated from power and from the people. Uh, secondly, this, this unpopularity really proved to be important, as Yeltsin's party, Unity, uh, lost elections both in December 1999 and in May. They, they completely failed their, their tasks. So, basically, uh, everyone there at the top were extremely worried uh, the common people hated the government, but they thought that Yeltsin would be there forever. And at that point, uh, there were a lot of kind of rumors going around and evidence showing up that Yeltsin's daughters, at this point, had stashed huge amounts of money in Swiss bank accounts because uh, <clears throat> because these they, they were basically stealing money from from the Russian people and stashing it away, and everything was terrible. And yeah, apparently... This whole thing happened through a an, an Swiss construction firm called Mabetex. Also, another famous person, Berezovsky, was under investigation at that time for embez- embezzlement when he had been running Iroflot at this point. So uh, during the days the 12 days from September 4th to September the 16th, everything changed in Russia. One of, one of the most famous quotes about all this situation, uh, was was made by Sergei Kovalyov, who at this point was was by that point the the widely respected kind of head of the Russian organization Memorial. And he observed in in two thousand, after the bombings that we're going to talk about in Russia, that quote: <clears throat> "This was a crucial moment in the unfolding of our current history. After the first shock passed, it turned out that we were living in an entirely different country." So this was important. Four Russian apartment buildings were blown up in Moscow, Bujnaksk, Volgodonsk. The controversies that basically cracked the country over corruption and privatization, that that whole thing was forgotten. Eight years of uh, all this post-Soviet history was basically focused uh, in, in this whole massive apartment building bombing. Putin, at the time... Uh, who was just appointed prime minister, expressed uh, the kind of, kind of this country's desire for revenge. On September 20, 24th, at that time, Putin said, quote, We will pursue the terrorists everywhere. If they are in an airport, then in an airport. And forgive me, if we catch them in the toilet, then we'll punch them in the toilet as well. The question is closed once and for all. Well, punching them in the toilet has now became, become basically a standard phrase here, um, like in, in Eastern Europe. It's, um, uh, like beat them down in the, beat them down in the toilet. It's kind of, um, uh, interesting there. Because obviously, Russian officials at the time said that there was a Chechen trail in the bombings. The wording was unusual. No proof, but a trail of the situation. Chechens, however, themselves insisted they had nothing to do with the bombings and really no proof of their involvement was ever kind of produced. But Russian army at the time were already fighting Chechen rebels in Dagestan, and the country just needed someone to blame for the situation. Russians at this point were opposed to further uh, escalation of activities in Chechnya and military military, uh, involvement there, but these apartment bombings basically shifted the public opinion and everyone was kind of ready for a new Chechen war. But, uh, the fact that this whole, this whole bombing thing was not all that it was, was, uh, is kind of clear and obvious to everyone who has studied the evidence, because to the extent that there is evidence, as this has not been fully investigated and everyone's just going around the theories, but all the evidence that we actually have about the situation literally points to the Kremlin leadership and the FSB, Because one of the theories is that Yeltsin wanted to, basically, he knew that he would lose the election and he needed to ensure that he would get a successor who would provide complete safety to him and his entourage and his family, both physical safety and financial safety, and he knew that he would kind of lose the election if something, you know, terrible wouldn't happen which would then allow him to institute a a kind of state of emergency, thus postponing election and ensuring time would happen where he could put someone on the throne of Russia. Yeah, because, you know, it's not really an elected office by this point, I think. Uh, He wanted to put someone on the throne that would ensure his own safety. And he actually succeeded in this, and... uh, this is all about the bombings and the evidence that we have about them, which basically led to massive support, and yeah, which eventually led to Putin's election. So again, let's, uh, let's turn back and investigate how did these bombings actually happened, and what really did take place there. Russia, in the spring of 1999, like I just said before, was a nation which is basically impoverished and totally under criminal rule, and under Yeltsin. And far from certain that the presidential elections set for June 2000 would take place. Yeltsin's popularity rating was at 2%. Uh, Putin's, by the way, (laughs) who was basically prime minister and, you know, the chosen heir so that he would be safe, was also 2%. It was regarded as kind of almost impossible that anyone connected with Yeltsin could win a free election. But... But there was a widespread fear that Yeltsin would find a pretext for declaring state of emergency, so that the elections would not take place. In June nineteen ninety nine, two journalists, Jan Blomgren of the Swedish newspaper Svenska Dagbladet, and Giulietto Chiesa, the respected long time Moscow correspondent for the Italian newspaper La Stampa, reported that there was going to be an act of state terrorism in Russia. The goal would be to instill fear and panic in the population. Chiesa wrote, With a high degree of certitude, one can say that the explosions of bombs killing innocent people are always planned by people with political minds who are interested in destabilizing the situation in the country. It could be foreigners, but it could be our own people trying to frighten the country. These reports were followed in July by an article by the Russian journalist Alexander Zhilin in the national paper Moskovskaya Pravda, warning that there would be terrorist attacks in Moscow. Citing a leaked Kremlin document, Zhilin wrote that the purpose would be to derail Yeltsin's political opponents, in particular Yuri Lushkov, the mayor of Moscow, and the former prime minister Yevgeny Primakov. Zhilin's information, who was, which, which appeared in the article, which was called Storm in Moscow, was ignored. What he claimed at that time seemed to be un- unthinkable. Boris Berezovsky, who had fled to London in 2000 after falling out with Putin, was at that time in 1999, uh, according to one John Dunlop, who whose book I'm using here, was the mastermind of a plan to destabilize Russia, although not by using bombs to kill innocent people. Berezovsky, at this point, paid huge ransoms to extremist Chechen separatists, to to gain the release of Russian hostages, thereby undermining the more moderate political forces in Chechnya, and encouraging an invasion of the neighboring Republic of Dagestan in August 1999 by Chechen rebel forces. According to Mr. Dunlap, the Kremlin sponsored the incursion into Dagestan in order to provoke conflict with Chechnya. This would provide, then, this this necessary excuse to declare a state of emergency and postpone the elections. And at that point, uh, and those who are my patrons and are listening to the Poyotkovskoja book, a ton of first-hand reports attested that the rebels were allowed into and out of Dagestan without any, any kind of hindrance. Vladimir Putin here had a central part in carrying out this Dagestan op- uh, operation. Putin had gained the favor of the family, of Yeltsin's family, and had been named here apparent. As the head of the FSB, the successor of KGB, before he became Prime Minister, he had demonstrated his loyalty to Yeltsin by managing to get Russian Prosecutor General Yuri Skuratov, uh, who was pursuing the Mabetex corruption scandal, removed from office. Putin's FSB had also started a campaign against the rich wife of Yuri Lushkov, Yelena Baturina, by investigating one of her companies for money laundering. But Putin was unknown to the Russian public. If elections were to take place, and this apparently had yet to be decided upon, like I said before, his approval rating was just 2%. Something would have to occur to boost Putin's public image and demonstrate his capacity for strong leadership. The invasion of Dagestan by Chechen rebels failed to have the desired effect of arousing widespread anti-Chechen sentiment. So, they needed more violence to happen. And um, during, during this kind of ...weird summer when when this invasion is going on... ...and when the articles are appearing from, like, sources... (laughs) ...all sorts of sources all around... ...and everything is in total, like, rumors about the bombings... ...and, like, there are articles about this... Um, ...another one of my sources, David Satter... ...was apparently meeting up with a Russian political operative... ...and uh, then we we can read from his report... ...that um, when Mr. Satter met this person... (laughs) ...that, again... Uh, Another another kind of suspicion was was called, and it was stated that, quote, When I met him, he told me about the growing fear in the Kremlin about the possibility of losing power and the indications that Moscow would be the the scene of a huge provocation. He said that the issue was the security of Yeltsin and his family in the case of a handover of power. He said that if there was no agreement in terms, they will blow up half of Moscow. So, Mr. Satter, uh, at one of his articles, reports that he sensed the uneasiness, but did not know how to assess the prediction of, of this person. But it was hard to imagine for him, and at the time for everyone else, even in this whole post-Soviet area, that something so terrible would happen. At 9.40pm on September 4th, a truck bomb exploded in, in Buynaksk, Dagestan's second largest city. It destroyed a five-story apartment building which housed soldiers from the 136th Motor Rifle Brigade. And even though these events in Buynosk were major, they did not stun the nation because Dagestan was a war zone. On September the 9th, however, the terrorists struck again, this time in Moscow. Shortly after midnight, a bomb exploded in the basement of a building of 19 Guryanova Street in a working-class area in the southeast part of the city. The central section of the building was obliterated, leaving the left and right stairwells standing on each side of a gaping hall. Fires raged for hours under the rubble. And there we have rescuers, by, rescuer reports, and, uh, quote, <clears throat> it's like hell underneath, even if they survived the blast, they would have been buried alive. So in the end of the situation, 94 people were killed and 164 more injured. Russian officials clearly blamed the bombing on Chechen terrorists seeking their revenge for their defeat in Dagestan. The Moscow FSB announced that items removed from the scene showed traces of TNT and Hexagon, Hexagon A synthetic explosive. But the fun continues. On September the 13th, four days after the explosion on Grudyanov Street, there was an explosion at 5 a.m. at 6 Kashirovskaya Highway in Moscow that flattened a nine-story brick apartment building, transforming it into a pile of rubble. The explosion took place at a time when almost all the residents were asleep. People in Moscow basically woke up to graphic television footage showing emergency workers who were feverishly going through the debris. Death toll was eventually, you know, determined to be about 119 with 200 injured. The Russian capital was in fear at that moment. Every one of the city's uh, more than 30,000 residential buildings was obviously ordered to be checked for explosives and residents organized round-the-clock patrols. There were about there were like thousands and thousands of calls to the police reporting suspicious activity, and we saw this in Latvia as well. Because at the time I was about ten, and they said I, that was everything I remember in the evening news. There was literally nothing else in the summer of 1999 or, or early autumn in the news here in Latvia as well. But this this continued on, because on the September 16th, uh, th- at that time, the funerals of the Moscow victims were still going on, and another truck bomb exploded in Volgodonsk, uh, that's southern Russia. The blast ripped off the facade of a nine-story apartment building, and the dead bodies of 18 persons, including two children, were pulled from the rubble. 89 people were put in the hospital. The explosion, like the previous one on the Kashirskoy highway, took place at 5 in the morning. At this point, the shock was so great that afterwards a bunch of people basically were unwilling to sleep inside their own homes, and there were reports that they insisted they insisted to basically sleep outdoors for a while. This bomb left a crater 3, 3.5 meters in depth and 13 to 15 meters in diameter. Parts of the Gaz-53 vehicle that had carried the bomb were dispersed over a radius of 1.5 kilometers. Now... The Volgodonsk bombing appeared to mean that there would now be attempts to bomb apartment buildings in cities outside of Moscow. This expectation was, was soon carried out and people were preparing for this, but what happened was was interesting later on, which, which proved even more that something fishy was going on here. At 8.30pm on September 22nd, one Alexei Kartofelnikov returned home to his apartment in Ryazan, a city which is uh, about 120 miles, that's approximately 150 kilometers, I think, southeast of Moscow, and he had spent a weekend at his summer home at his dacha. He noticed a white Lada parked in front of the building at 1416 Novoselov Street, with a male passenger in the back seat. The last two numbers of the car's license plates were covered with pieces of paper that had 62, the code for Ryazan, written on them. Gortofelnikov went up to his apartment and instantly called the police. His daughter Yulia, a 23-year-old nurse, went out to the balcony and watched as a man emerged from the basement, checked his watch, and got into the car, uh, where there were now two people sitting there. When the police arrived, Yulia insisted that they check the basement. The basement had been used as a toilet by local, local bums, so they were far from enthusiastic. The, but the police finally, you know, they, they went downstairs, and then they ran back up, shouting that there's a bomb there. The building obviously was in chaos, and everyone started panicking. Police began going door to door, telling residents to leave. People obviously t- took babies out of bathtubs, grabbed documents, and like threw overcoats. was crazy. Obviously, uh, weirdly enough, those too ill to actually leave the building were kind of carried out by those who could. And as residents watched on the street, the police, including Yurit Kachenko, who was the head of the local bomb squad, entered the basement. Kachenko disconnected a detonator and timing device and then tested three sacks of a white crystalline substance with an MO2 portable gas analyzer. The contents of the sacks tested positive for hexogen, the same substance used in the previous apartment buildings. There now was no question, but, you know, someone had actually tried to explode the situation. The sacks were taken out of the basement at around 1.30am and driven away by FSB. The FSB agents forgot to take away the highly professional military detonator, however, which was left in the hands of the bomb squad. They posted pictures on this the next day. On the basis of descriptions by Kartofilnikov, his daughter, and some neighbors, the police then prepared uh, kind of identifying portraits like photo robots uh, of the suspects. In the meantime, the railroad stations and airport were cordoned off, and roads leading out of the city were blocked. And as the morning kind of happened, the white Lada was found abandoned in a parking lot. A short time later, a call to Moscow was made from a public telephone in Ryazan, and the operator who connected the call caught a fragment of the conversation. The caller said that there was no way to get out of town undetected. The voice on the other end replied, Split up and each of you make your own way out. The operator reported the call to the police and they traced the number. To their surprise, the number was not connected to Chechen terrorists, but to the FSB. The terrorists were soon arrested and to the stupefaction of the police and everyone else, these guys just pulled out their FSB documentation and the FSB called and ordered them released. And the FSB basically now had to, you know, pro- provide some sort of explanation for what was going on. And on Friday, September 24th, the FSB director, Nikolai patrushev Ah, does this name sound sound cool to you? We'll get to him, what, what, is, what he's up to now. Nikolai Patroshev came out of a Kremlin meeting and, annou- and announced that the evacuation of the building had been part of a training exercise. But the fun, fun goes on, comrades. See, here I'd like to go go into a tiny little tangent about Mr. Nikolai Patroshev. This person, who was born in 1951, is currently a Russian politician and a secretary of the Security Council of Russia. It's about since 2008. This guy uh, was previously uh, previously the head of FSB, the successor of KGB, and um, he is a bit famous out here. For starters on the anniversary of the founding of Cheka, Patroshev stated that his FSB colleagues, quote, did not work for the money. They are, if you like, our new nobility. Patroshev clearly believes that the United States of America would much prefer that Russia did not exist at all. Also, quote, uh, he believes that... um, the United States want to eliminate Russia, quote, because we possess great natural resources. The Americans believe that we control them illegally and undeservedly, because, in their view, we do not use them as they ought to be used. Patrushev also, for some reason, referenced Madeline Albright's claim that neither the Far East nor Siberia belonged to Russia. Now, obviously, there is uh, no official record of Ma- Madeline Albright having made such re- such remark, uh, but. <clears throat> Quote, Instead, this remark can be traced back to a psychic employed by FSB who claimed to have read the thoughts of Albright's mind while in the state of France. I- I'm not even kidding you. Seriously. Mr. Patroshev also claims that 2014 Maidan revolution was started by the United States and you know, all sorts of crazy things but yes, Patrushev, as the head of uh, FSB has employed psychics to uh, read the minds of foreign politicians. And that is why he personally believes that still Madeleine Albright really, really wants to take Siberia and Far East of, from Russia. This, by the way, is not the only case where psychics had been employed by Mr. Patroshev. And the tradition still continues. And they still use psychics to trace down criminals and do all sorts of things. So, you know, if if you're into that kind of stuff, you might you might state that you might have a psychic gap the West or, or something. But yeah, Mr. Patroshev is now, obviously, among, <laughs> among the biggest Putinist elites in modern-day Russia. But let's carry on, because, obviously, this solution of the bombings was one of the reasons why he is so. Basically, Patroshev's statement in this case, that this whole was a training exercise, that was in a direct contradiction to what the authorities had been saying for the past pre- two days. On the morning of September 24th, Alexander Sergeyev, the head of the Ryazan FSB Bureau, appeared on television and congratulated residents on being saved from a terrorist attack. Vladimir Roshilov, the interior minister, announced on national television that an attempted terrorist act had been foiled. But now Patroshev said the incident was just a test. The sacks found by the bomb squad apparently had contained sugar, and the reading that indicated that they contained hexogen was an error. Patrushev said that there were similar exercises in other cities, but only in Ryazan did the people react promptly. Then he uh, tossed out compliments to the residents of their vigilance. Obviously, the strange training exercise provoked massive anger in Ryazan when people had spent the night on the street. Journalists now started, uh, you know, thinking about the situation that the possibility of all the bombings, the four successful ones and the failed bombing in Ryazan, had been the work of FSB. But, sadly, as it often happens in Russia, uh, everyone basically proved incapable of reacting in some sort of organized fashion. The day after the supposedly fake bomb in Razan was discovered, Russian aircraft began, began bombing the Grozny airport, and uh, October on October 1, Russian troops moved across the border, thus launching the Second Chechen War. And basically, what happened here was um, that even though Ryazan episode was kind of you know, disturbing one and raised a lot of suspicion, and people started investigating this uh, among them, now late Anna Politkovskaya, who was, who was killed, and Alexander Litvinenko, who was poisoned. Do, do you notice the trend here? Literally everyone who uh, had tried to investigate this whole situation seriously in Russia had later killed. But yeah, all this situation basically sparked a new support for war. Basically, five years earlier, and the first Chechen war had begun with the fact that uh, Russian troops were basically murdered in their tanks in Grozny in New Year's night, 1994-1995. This time, the invasion of Chechnya was carried out methodically, and it seemed that to be to be really successful. In the wake of apparently a successful Russian revenge attack, Putin's popularity soared. Again, in August, two percent of the population f- favored Putin. September. October, 21%, November, 45%, more than any other one who was running at the time. It was now clear that there would be no need to introduce emergency rule and postpone the elections. Putin would just win on his own with the help of this new war. Because that is why Putin still continues to this day. When he feels threatened, he starts a quick, winning war that never leads to any trouble in Russia or or anything else, such as, you know, everything that literally happens. Putin has, dear comrades, learned that, you know, quick, nice war against something that he could use as a ginormous, another Russian victory, trademark. Uh, That always helps. So, on September 14th, uh, the day after the first Moscow bombing in 1999, Putin said that the security services were quote, certain of the participation of Osama bin Laden in the bombings, and our friend Nikolai Patrushev said that the organizers of the bombings were quote, international terrorists dug in Chechnya with the connivance of the official powers of Grozny. These statements had some effect in leading the West to tie the apartment bombings to international Islamic terrorists, which I think was um, was a mistake here. Most important, however, was a thing that um, that at that time, the West in general, and including a lot of people in Latvia uh, and, and like even like post-Soviet things, was the idea that any regime would kind of murder their, its own people to terrify the nation and hold on to power. It was crazy. See, at this point, at this point, if you look back at this uh, and see what's going on, then it seems much, much more likely. And this whole thing. Kind of, um, and I have to put the blame on the West here, this whole idea that at the time nobody thought Putin would be capable of this situation led to the fact that, you know, West gave Putin more more chances. Uh, they didn't take any strong measures against Putin's regime, and they hoped for the best, so to speak. This is kind of... Uh Kind of a crazy here, because in the West, you know, this is this is what if you if you've been listening to my show, you understand that Russia operates quite differently from the West. But yeah, in December 1999, Russia held parliamentary elections, and uh, this whole thing turned Russia into another country. The winning the winning party was uh, right now Putin's leading United Russia, at that time known as just Yeginsko or Unity Party. It had no program just as putin in this election he also had no program and no platform uh, besides the only thing the unity party really did was you know consolidate and raise support for putin and they they kind of made uh made they they received such a majority that um under Yeltsin, see uh, this president, which because Russia is a pre- technically at least presidential republic, but you know more akin to monarchy, if back then in Yeltsin said that there was uh, oppositional parliament there, kind of uh, putting in putting kind of checks and balances in place, now pro-Putin forces achieved such a huge majority that they basically eliminated eliminated all real opposition. On New Year's Eve, Yeltsin resigned. And Putin, who only basically a couple of months before had been almost completely unknown, was appointed acting president in the Kremlin ceremony and given the nuclear codes instantly. Putin then, of course, of course, issued a decree granting Yeltsin and his family members lifelong immunity from prosecution. At this point, at this point the anger of the population, with the help of these bombings, was then turned towards Chechens. The election took place in March 26, 2000. Putin, as he had done and further on, kind of uh, did not even do serious campaigning. He didn't even explain. He didn't even explain where he stood on on kind of all the issues. He had no program. He didn't participate in the debates or anything of that matter. He won with 54% of the vote. Back then, at least, he won with some realistic votes. You see. But yeah, this whole coming of power of Putin kind of explains what he's going on with today because he always has won without any program or anything else. He just stirs up crazy things. But yeah, and this was not an, an anomaly. This These events with the bombings, this was kind of a logical conclusion. And, you know, later on we will see logical continuation. See, this was kind of the and the history of the previous eight years of Russia. Again, the transition from communism to capitalism in the early 90s was a crazy, crazy thing, and I've spoken about this in a bunch of previous episodes. There was kind of a moral codes there in communism. It was kind of weird, because in the early 90s, uh, like I said, it was basically a gangster rule. The, the idea in the population that something is right or something is wrong was, was kind of thrown out of the window. People did things for profit, and, you know, you worked for gangs. The criminal takeover of Russia under Yeltsin, in this way, this gangster rule like we also had in Latvia, was kind of almost inevitable. The transformation of the economical structures was completely dramatic, and it was crazy. And, uh, see, if in Latvia we managed to grab some order, then... The rule of law kind of went aside in in Russia over there. See, on second January nineteen ninety two, the reform government led by Deputy Prime Minister Yegor Gaidar, they just freed prices instantly. There was there was no um, no period of of kind of balance or something, and in ten months, uh, everything rose in price about twenty five to thirty times. Uh, by April nineteen ninety two. Nobody had any money. Officially, privatization had started in 1992 with the distribution of vouchers. Each voucher was denominated at 10,000 rubles. We had privatization certificates in Latvia. And they used these vouchers. Each voucher was 10,000 rubles and they supposedly represented a citizen's share of the national wealth. Factories were converted into joint stock companies and citizens were invited to exchange their vouchers for shares in any enterprises. But again, most people, as with our privatization certificates here in Latvia, had no idea what to do with these vouchers. Some, of course, did buy the shares in their own factories that they worked in. Others invested them in supposed voucher funds, which basically were advertised and promoted dividends. But uh, many many of these vouchers were just sold on the street because people had nothing to eat, and it was often for as little as $10 or a bottle of vodka. And at the time, there were reports about people who looked like vagrants who appeared in bus stops and metro stations with cardboard signs of which which people were basically writing, I buy vouchers. The shabby appearance of the purchasers was kind of intentional. It created the impression that the vouchers had no real value. And uh, this was kind of crazy, because at this point, people actually thought the vouchers were useless. But at this time, later it was found out that corrupt business and organized crime was behind the random bombs on the street who'd buy off vouchers. And uh, through the purchase of these vouchers, who were then later, who were, who were basically bought off, like people thought they were useless, they sold off for them for real cheap, and organized crime and all these oligarch groups grabbed power. And this was kind of crazy. So, this is how in the early 90s, like, the people that we now know as Putin's elite and all this crew came into power. See, in 1994, this voucher privatization was succeeded by privatization for cash. And by now, you know, these guys who had appeared and uh, basically bought everything with vouchers, which were, like, really worth way much more than what they, what they were buying, off of, buying them off from the people in the street. These guys purchased everything. And they still now basically run the whole country. And they used their new situation with vouchers to do things with cash as well. And many of these newly rich guys, they set up banks. And these banks began to be empowered to handle government accounts. The official rate of return of the government's money was not high. But uh, what mattered here was that these banks, they were ignoring instructions who were not enforced anyway, they treated budgetary funds as free capital available for investment. They delayed payments for months, often using the money for short-term interbank credits that were given at uh, rates as high as 400%. In the meantime, this is where the non-payment of salaries became a reality for a lot of workers in Russia. And this new group of millionaires and billionaires, who, with the advent of the second stage of privatization, were able to buy up all these mines and factories uh, of, of Russia for a fraction of their real value, this was this was the point where Russia started being stolen. Enterprises were officially sold at auction, but the auctions were all almost always fixed. The state property committee routinely eliminated bidders or provided information about competing offers to the predetermined winner. The competitive bidding was a rarity, and in the event that a powerful group was outbid by an insistent competitor, the successful bidder could easily pay for his tenacity with his life. This is where another form of car bombings of, of you know, basically these organized crime guys becoming businessmen. You know, they just started to bomb things out. They just kept on going, stealing from their own Russian people and their whole budget thing, and they still do that. If you've listened to any of my previous episodes, you know this. And... At this point, they basically had created a, a, um, a system of oligarchy. In April 1996, after this massive pillaging, this whole system of organized crime forming elites stealing from the government was basically, well, that, that's the moment where it was born. Despite the fact that in almost every case they owed their wealth to basically stealing this thing, they presented themselves to the population as enterprising capitalists with an indisputable right to rule. In a letter signed by 13 oligarchs and published in leading Russian newspapers, they issued a veiled threat that appeared to be directed against the communists, who were gaining in the public opinion polls. Quote, Those who rely on social confirmation and ideological revanchism should understand that the national entrepreneurs have the necessary resources and will to deal with unprincipled politicians. And this whole first stealing of the country led to complete economic collapse, obviously. for The first Russian economical collapse. In the period of 1992 to 1998, Russia's GDP fell by half. And that's more than what happened in the Great Depression, where the United States economy shrunk by about 30%. The collapse of industrial production was even greater, declining 56%. This was just crazy. At this point, this is the time when Russia at first became this um, raw resource colony, as as many people declare it to be even to this day, because things are going going on still. People went months and even years without being paid. As a result, obviously, you know, Soviet man endures and grows their own food. The economic disaster was again accompanied by a demo- demographic catastrophe. Male life expectancy fell more, more by six years. In 1998, the average male life expectancy was 57 years, the lowest in the industrial world. Female life expectancy fell from 76 to 70. Child mortality doubled, and this was just kind of kind of crazy. And at one point, I read the reports here that uh, the demographical scientists in the West didn't even believe those numbers. During the 90s, the Russian population, overall, fell by about 750,000 by a year. The government, during all these years, having received very little from privatization, they basically outspent themselves. In a bid to net out the deficit they began issuing short-term government obligations, GKOs. These were denominated in rubles and usually had a three-to-six-month term. The market grew from $3 billion at the end of 1994 to $47.6 billion in 1996 and $64.7 billion in 1997. As Russia's financial position worsened, however, the rate of interest was increasing, obviously, sometimes exceeding 200%. By mid-1998, Russian government was spending more than $1 billion a week just to pay off these obligations. Faced with this crazy financial crisis, on August 17, 1998, the government devalued the currency, defaulted on $40 billion worth of treasury bills, and halted the repayment of commercial debt. Prices rose sharply once again, and what little middle class at this point Russia had was completely annihilated. This was a complete shock. In 1998, people returned from summer vacations to basically f- to find out that they couldn't, rem- couldn't take uh, money out of ATMs anymore. Currency exchange post- points posted new ruble-dollar ruble exchange rates hourly. This is basically what, uh, what happened in Weimar Germany uh, all over again. People began to basically buy everything up. Salt, sugar matches, flour, everyone was packing. Uh, by the way, this, this also... This also happened sort of in Latvia where people were panicking because we had a lot of Russian bank investment and our own economy was quite shocked in 1998, but uh, we kind of, you know, breezed through this because then the Swedish banks came and kind of saved the situation in Latvia. But the paranoia about banking crises and being hit hard is still pretty strong, because, uh, like, in 2007, for one, Alice's dad, who was a businessman at the time when, when the new kind of economical bubble hit and the new kind of brand new crisis of 2007 happened, then Alice's dad basically stockpiled up on stock foods and was kind of prepared to leave the country for China or whatever, because he knew how hard it was in 1998. This was just crazy. So, in this wake of this crisis, Yeltsin nominated Yevgeny Primakov, who used to be the head of the Foreign Intelligence Service to be prime minister. The crisis had destroyed uh, all the support Yevgeny had, Yeltsin had, and the appointment of Primakov was a compromise with the political opposition. After Duma twice voted down Yeltsin's attempt to reappoint the former prime minister, Viktor Chernomir did in the post, which, again, caused another sharp decline in the economy. Primakov, however, was not content with the status quo. Once appointed, he, started authori- he authorized this investigation of Yeltsin family and of some of the oligarchs, starting with the now famous Berezovsky. This is where the investigation of this group began, really. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp. H-E-L-P. So, this was about the Mobitex and that investigation. So, how did these guys react? Well, they did it really, really quickly. The FSB, under the leadership of then-director Vladimir Putin filmed Skuratov, one of the main investigators there, in a sauna, engaging in sex with two prostitutes. The film was then shown on state television channel RTR in prime time, and Skuratov was forced to resign. An arrest order against Berezovsky, who then, you know, in 2000 would leave Russia and became, become Putin's enemy, but at this time he was doing weird things himself, this was revoked, This his arrest order. The elimination of, Ye- of Skoratov, however, could not eliminate the long-term threat to Yeltsin's family. By family, not only daughters which had which held these Swiss bank accounts, but everyone else of these, these oligarchs over there. Yeltsin's health was deteriorating, because he was an, a raging alcoholic. Like, crazy. He was a crazy drunkard even by Russian standards. And sensing Yeltsin's weakness here, the opposition in the state Duma scheduled a vote on impeachment. Because He had, for months at that point, absented himself from daily political struggle and avoided any decision-making. On May the 12th, the day before the opening of the hearings, however, Yeltsin fired Primakov and installed the interior minister, Sergei Stepashkin, as acting premier. Yeltsin's readiness to fire Primakov, the most popular politician in the country, was taken as a sign to the deputies that, his health notwithstanding, in the event of impeachment, he was ready to suppress the parliament by force. The impeachment vote failed, but Yuri Lushkov began to organize opposition to Yeltsin in this anticipation of the 2000 elections. He recruited Primakov for his fatherland All Russia movement and said that if Primakov ran for president, he would support him. At first, members of the Yeltsin family hoped that Stepashin would be able to defeat Primakov in an election. Soon became clear, however, that Stepashin did not relish attacking Yeltsin's opponents, and there were reports that he rejected schemes for introducing a state of emergency and cancelling the presidential elections out of fear of igniting a civil war. Among the, sea- among the schemes being discussed by insiders was Storm in Moscow, the article which uh, kind of did these, uh, did these reports on possible terrorists, which was reported by Moskovskaya Pravda. On August 5th, however, with this political crisis at, at its complete peak, a Chechen-Islamist force invaded Dagestan and this invasion of Dagestan was suspicious from the start. In late spring, with an attack expected, the authorities withdrew Russian internal troops that were stationed at the border. A high-ranking Russian police officer later said that if the internal forces had not been withdrawn, the invasion would not have been possible. When a force of of 1,200 armed men, commanded by, by the Chechen leader Shamil Basayev, entered Dagestan from Chechnya, they encountered no serious resistance. On August 23rd, they withdrew, again without encountering resistance. A Russian commander told the reporter for the Time magazine that he had Basayev in his sights, but was ordered to hold his fire. We could have wiped him out here, then, and there, he said. But the bosses in Moscow wanted him alive. On August the 9th, Stepashin was dismissed, and Putin was named the new prime minister. The prospects of the all-but-unknown Putin, like those of anyone associated with Yeltsin, appeared negligible, just 2%. But again, this is where the apartment buildings on Moscow, Boynask and Volgodonsk were blown up. And the rest is history. This is where Putin became Putin as we know him today. See, this is how the term Black August appeared in Putin, Russia. This is, um, due to these bombings, Black August really happened. Because the things that has happened during Putin's rule is kind of crazy because after after this 1999 putin continued his idea about using using uh, terrorism and and his own disasters to hide things and to use terror is in his own favor one thing that happens today is like at the moment with this recording there was a massive fire in kemerovo that's a suburb of moscow kind of uh, under moscow moscow district thing and uh, according to the latest news in kemerovo there are a bunch of like uh, in the in this trading center that started burning it was owned by Putin's friend and just recently uh, basically it was stated that um, that everything everything was fu- everything was fine there at this point uh, at this point at the time of this recording it is known that more than 100 people have died uh from them a lot of children have died in a fire uh, there are a lot of people missing and everything in the meantime uh, this is only known by me because of Meduza, EO and other other opposition articles as i watched russian news about the situation as this ties into this episode this is kind of an addendum here at this point russian television has stated that at, th- at first they said that uh, even though like no one ha- no nothing no one has died at this point it has increased to, like they say that five people have died at this point, when Putin has come to power, the acts of terror and weirdnesses are not useful for him. But yeah, this kind of made me think, if we're talking about weird, tragic events in Russia, well, what are the most known ones? So, um, thanks to thanks to Aeromaidan Press, which was news and news from Ukraine here, they made a nice compilation here, and uh, some, some things from, from that article. Besides the terrorist acts in 1999, there was also, if you remember, the Kursk. On September 12, 2000, the K-141 nuclear submarine Kursk sank during Russian naval fleet training in the Barents Sea. According to official data, a torpedo explosion occurred inside the submarine, which had been launched in May 1994 due to fuel leakage. A fire that broke out two minutes after the initial explosion caused torpedoes in the first uh, compartment of the submarine to detonate a second explosion caused even more significant destruction. This resulted in the deaths of all 118 crew members. The search and recovery operation completed a year later and uncovered 150 bodies of fallen sailors. Kursk, by the way, at that point had been considered the best submarine in Northern Fleet. Then we also had Nordost. ost In November 23-26, 2002, the tragedy occurred in Moscow Theatre Centre in Dubrovka. A group of gunmen took the audience of the Nord-Ost musical hostage, as well as the theatre staff. After almost three days, the building was stormed, the terrorists were eliminated, and the hostages who had miraculously survived were freed. This terrorist act resulted in the death of 130 hostages. Now, this is interesting. According to the reports published by investigators, preparations for the terrorist act began in October 2002, when explosives and weapons were delivered to Moscow from Chechnya by car. The terrorist act was planned back in the summer of 2002, at the council of Chechen field commanders, what is interesting here is that in the case of Kursk, Vladimir Putin uh, basically forbade Western countries to aid these people before the second explosion. And now there are obviously rumors going around, circling in in uh, all of uh, all of Russia, that it was actually filthy Norwegians who shot the Kursk, which is just stupid and crazy. But uh, there was this is another another uh, beginning of another. Kind of famous statement by Putin when asked by, I think it was uh, CNN or something, but he was asked by an American interviewer what happened with the Kursk. Putin just smiled and replied, Well, it drowned. That's it. Anna that, Utanula. That was kind of the famous thing. About Nordost. Yeah, this is where things start to get scary as uh, the guys who stormed in, they used. They used the gas to put kind of terrorists to sleep, but they didn't take anyone alive. They killed all the terrorists under direct orders, and there's a lot of suspicion about Nord-Ost, about the fact that those terrorists might have been nicely financed, and there's a lot of evidence that point to Putin financing the nice Nord-Ost thing after all the situation, because what happened there was, again, highly suspicious. The following thing happened in 2004. Again. Election year in Russia, September one to third. On September the first, uh, the terrorists occupied a school building in North Ossetia, in the town of Beslan. The occupation happened during the first day of school celebrations. These guys took over a thousand people hostage, including children and their parents. The school was stormed on the third day, September the third. Three hundred and thirty-four people died, including six hundred and eighty-six kids and thirteen law official, uh, law enforcement officers. Any like And uh, this was crazy because, uh, at that time, special operations guys basically blew up a hole in the building in the room where the kids were sitting and to storm the whole place. Again, they took no terrorists alive, they shot all of them, and they didn't really care for the lives of the kids as well. Uh, this is, by the way, this Beslan terrorist attack and Nordos terrorist, terrorist attack, they are all... Uh, Kind of deeply investigated in the book by Anna Politkovskaya, which I, you know, which I do for in chapters for my Patreon supporters. So I will not go into detail here. If you're a Patreon, please do listen to the book or, or and stuff. The following thing also happened later on March 19, 2007. Uh, an accident in the Ulyanovskaya mine, in again Kemerovo Oblast, where where this um, this trade center is burning today. This took lives of 110 people. 93 miners were saved. The Russian Federal Service for Ecological, Techn- Technological, and Nuclear Supervision announced that, quote, blatant violations of security measures occurred at the mine. The oblast governor, Aman Tuleyev, stated that on the day of the tragedy, they were setting up equipment designed to detect and localize gas leaks in the mine. Almost the entire leadership of the mine went underground to check the system and died in the explosion. This was the point, again... Where in the independent investigators then found, found out that, you know, the mine, as, as I have mentioned previously, was under the process of being uh, racketeered away to some of Putin's friends. Next thing happened in August 17, 2009. The Sayano-Sushushensk hydroelectric plant, largest in Russia and the sixth largest in the world, was shut down in August 17 when water started leaking into the equipment room. Three out of ten hydro turbines were completely destroyed, the rest were damaged. The biggest hydroelectric disaster in the history of Russia, and Soviet electricity in general, caused the deaths of 75 people. The committee of the Russian state Duma that investigated the reasons for the disaster named about 20 plant workers which they deemed responsible for the tragedy. This was mostly because the plant workers, again, were not paid at all in months and had a lot of reasons to basically not do their job very well. Continuing, December the 5th, 2009. In terms of victim, victim count, so far the largest fire in the history of post-Soviet Russia. It happened in the Perm nightclub Lame Horse. According to the investigation, it began during a pyrotechnic show when sparks came in contact with the ceiling made out of dry wood and caused a fire. A stampede immediately began at the club, and as a, as a result, not all were able to escape. This fire caused the deaths of 156 people, and several dozen received burns of various degrees. In connection with the incident, a number of fire department officials were dismissed, and the entire government of Perm, Permkrai resigned. Putin Permkrai government had consisted of... Um, they, they had a kind of sizable opposition parties there. After that, no longer. On March 29th, 2010... There was a terrorist attack in the Moscow metro. Officially, two suicide bombers from Dagestan caused separate explosions at the Ljubljanka and Park of Culture stations on the Sokolitskaya line of the Moscow metro. 49 people died uh, died in the explosions. The victims included citizens of Russia, Tajikistan, Kyrgyzstan, Philippines, Israel and Malaysia. Leader of the Caucasus Emirate, Doku Umarov, assumed responsibility for these explosions. Then, in April 10, 2010, just 11 days later, uh, a plane crashed in Smolensk, which is an important incident. The presidential 2-154 plane of the Polish Air Force crashed during its landing at the Smolensk North Airport. Everyone on board died in the crash, 88 passengers and 8 crew members. Among them was the Polish president Lech Kaczynski, his wife Maria Kaczynska, famous Polish politicians, almost the entire High Military Command, and civic and religious activists. This was the highest casualty airplane crash among those that caused the death of a head of a state. President Kaczynski, by the way, was headed to Russia on a private visit to the head of the Polish delegation to commemorate the 70-year anniversary of the shooting of Polish officers in in Katynsk. According to official reports, the plane crashed while landing due to thick fog. July 10, 2011 the two-deck diesel electrical ship Bulgaria sank within three kilometers of the shore while heading from the town of Bulgar to Kazan. The main reason, reason of the disaster was that the crew did not close the portholes and water entered the ship when it tipped while, during, uh, while turning due to the wind. According to final data, out of 201 people on board, only 79 were saved. The deaths of another 122 have been confirmed. The victims included the captain of the ship, Alexander Ostrovsky. One fourth of the passengers were children. Then, moving on. January 24th, 2011. An explosion in the international terminal at Moscow's Domodiedovo airport was caused by a suicide bomber. The power of the explosive was equivalent to about 7 kilograms of TNT. The bomb was filled with metal shrapnel, possibly pieces of wire. Thirty-seven people died as a result of the attack, among which was Ukrainian writer from Odessa Hanna Yablonsk. Doku Umarov, the, the, the head of Imarat Caucasus, assumed responsibility. The suicide bomber at the airport was the 20-year-old English city born Megomed Yeloyev. And finally, from this list, July 15, 2014, just after the annexation of Crimea. Three metro train cars went off the rails between the stations at Victory Park and Slavyansk Boulevard on the Abrat Pokronskaya line. 23 people died. The final story of the official reports again on the train accident was bad rail conditions and low-quality repair work. The crash uh, has been deemed the biggest industrial disaster in the Moscow underground. All these terror attacks have basically just increased Putin's rating. And I do not know how many of them were intentional and how many were not. But um, you might think that it's kind of crazy and that, that, you know, maybe it's just a list of disasters. But once you look back at the bombings of 1999 and uh, and, and just see the clear evidence that something was going on there, that the government was clearly involved and all this story about sugar and testing and all this controversy here... See, there are, th- this causes a lot of suspicion and doubts. And I do not know how many of these terror attacks and murders of own people were Putin involved in. But, like I said before, in many of these cases, there's a lot of suspicion about government's involvement, a lot of evidence, a lot of discrepancies in the official studies. And after the bombings, you know... We used to think that you no know, head of state would kill his own people for, like, stability and popularity, but, but that's Putin's modus operandi. That's how he gains support, that's how he rallies people around them, because when bad things happen in Russia, the government becomes more popular. Now, this is a food for thought, but small and victorious wars, an act of terrorism, that's that's what Putin's reign has brought Russia, and I hope it actually ends because this is really a sad episode, especially today when there's this fire in Kemerovo. But you know, wouldn't be surprised if, uh, from all this list that I read you, a lot of things would actually by <laughs> will actually be done by the FSB themselves. Putin's Putin's regime uh, basically lies back on all these criminals. From the '90s, and um, and their friends, and their, his new oligarchs, and it stands on the shoulders of on the Secret Service, because uh, if suddenly people in Russia would not be afraid, because Putin runs on his stability platform, maybe things would change. But like I've mentioned in my previous episodes, hope you enjoyed the show, and uh, see you next weekend with the great game of Lenin and the UK. Do svidanje, Tavares. Thank you for listening to The Eastern Border. If you have any comments or specific details you'd like to know, you're welcome to leave it in the comment section on our site, theeasternborder.lv, and we'll rummage even to The Western Border to find you an answer. Like this podcast? Subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or on our RSS feed. Happiness is mandatory. Good reviews and donations feed the farmers of our Kolkhoz in the Great Motherland. The Eastern Border salutes you. This podcast is part of the Dark Myths Collective. Visit darkmyths.org for more shows like this one. The darkness awaits.